Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. In this episode, we explore what climate change looks like in Brantford and how the community is responding. We'll start with some basics about what weather and climate has been like historically in the Brantford area, and I'll share some key concepts scientists use to measure and compare temperature and precipitation. Then I speak with Ken and Carly from the city's Environmental Sustainability and Policy Advisory Committee and the Green Team about how they've worked with the city to propose initiatives. And I speak with Professor Robert McLemon from Wilfrid Laurier University and one of the coordinating lead authors of a report that came out in February 2022 from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In the last few years, the city of Brantford and other cities have declared climate emergencies and started developing climate change action plans. We definitely hear more about climate change now, and anytime you talk about the weather, it's sure to start a conversation about climate change. Even though we seem to talk about it more, I think there's still a lot of confusion and misinformation about climate change out there. Definitely. Having studied earth science and geography, I've gained a foundational understanding of the Earth's climate and how it works. I have so much information about this, I could go on for hours. In preparing for this episode, it was important to us that people were less confused about climate change after they finished listening. So your part will give listeners a good base of understanding for the rest of the episode. Our guest speakers also talk about how things like the city's climate change action plan and the IPCC report were written to be understood by everyone, not just scientists and other experts. I actually started reading the IPCC report Robert worked on. It was dense with information, but easy to understand. We're happy to share what Ken, Carly, and Robert each talk about in regards to how we can change daily practices and work together as communities to reduce our overall consumption and waste. It was great to hear from Carly and Ken about what is already being done in our community by community members community working for community. Nathan, why don't you get us started with some of the basics? What is the difference between climate and weather? Well, weather describes the state of the atmosphere at a particular point and at a particular time. 
climate describes weather at a particular point over a long period of time. So we may say that the Brantford Weather Station reported a temperature of 24 degrees Celsius at noon on July 27, 2022, and that makes up one data point that goes into summarizing the climate. Climate normals are done for Brantford over a 30-year period. If you can imagine the 24 hourly reports over a month of 30 days and add that up over 30 years, it totals 21,600 data points. One of my favorite examples is Hurricane Katrina that people always say is indicative of climate change. The hurricane dropped about 14 inches or 355 millimeters of rain in two days. Once you average this out over 30 years, it corresponds to 0.4 millimeters per day or 12 millimeters for the entire month. When you compare this with the average monthly rainfall for New Orleans, it's 184 millimeters. So it's less than 10% of the, of the rainfall, which is really inconsequential. It may be a significant extreme, but we are looking for much larger changes when talking about climate change. We hear all the time about temperature records being broken. Can you give us some context for what this means? The thing about all-time records is you have to look at the length of the time the station has been uh, recording information for. So if it a uh, station has only existed in one location for 20 years, breaking an all-time record is not really a big thing because your data set isn't that big. Now imagine the first weather station in Canada that opened on Christmas Day in 1839 and breaking a temperature record for the hottest day when you have over 180 years of data. It's a lot more significant. It also depends on the location of the stations, which often change, as well as the accuracy of the equipment. Gumball analysis involves a lot of statistics. For example, the daily average temperature, which is the maximum temperature minus the minimum temperature divided by two, in Brantford for the month of September is 16 degrees with a standard deviation of one degree. We would assume that a normal distribution or bell curve with one standard deviation comprising 69% of your data set two standard deviations cover 95%, and three standard deviations cover 99.9%. Hence, the average daily temperature of 16.8 degrees Celsius would be considered normal compared to the average of 16, while a daily average temperature of 21 would be three standard deviations above and what we would call it an extreme event. Okay, so before we go any further, can you tell us what is Gumbel analysis and what statistics do we use to inform us? Well, Gumbel analysis or extreme event analysis uses these statistics to predict what is happening in those extreme or worst case scenarios. In the case of flooding on the Grand River, 1974 was our historic flood that we use. However, Hurricane Hazel in 1954 actually produced higher river flows but we didn't have measuring stations in place at the time. These can be translated into something called intensity, duration, frequency, or IDF curves. And you'll see an example of that for Brantford in the show notes. This curve would tell us that every two years, we should expect to have a storm that drops 28 millimeters of rain in an hour. And we would only expect an hourly rainfall of 70 millimeters in one hour about once every hundred years. Okay, Nathan, all this weather data seems valuable and useful to us. 
But what happens when we don't have a weather station from 200 years ago to talk about a one in 200 year event? Earth scientists have found other proxy data that they use to estimate the climate of the past. Remember how they have been tracking the amount of COVID in wastewater? That is an example of using proxy data when tests were not readily available to the public. In order to have access to air samples from hundreds of thousands of years ago, we have to look to glaciers that have been around for that long. As the snow falls, there is a lot of vacant void space or air between the snowflakes. As more snow piles on top, the snow compacts and this void space gets smaller and smaller. The snow eventually turns to ice and these air bubbles are preserved in the ice. Scientists in Vostok, Antarctica started drilling in 1998 and completed an ice core that measures 3,623 meters in length, representing 420,000 years and four climate cycles. These air bubbles contain atmospheric trace gas compositions, which scientists measure. Oxygen has two isotopes, 16 and 18, and the ratio of these approximates temperature. And other gases like methane are used to represent precipitation. How do the bumps in these ice core curves relate to something called Milankovitch cycles? Milankovitch cycles are basically changes in the Earth's proximity to the sun, and these happen with regular return periods that correspond with the bumps in these curves and the bumps from the ice cores. These variations are grouped into three types, eccentricity, tilt, and precession. Eccentricity is the first concept. The Earth's orbit around the sun is not perfectly circular. It's more of an ellipse, and the shape of that ellipse can vary. So this uh, changes about once every 100,000 years and is responsible for the large jumps we see in these ice core records. The second concept is tilt. Tilt describes the angle the Earth tilts towards the sun and is currently 23 and a half degrees. A higher tilt results in higher variability in the seasons. A lower tilt means the seasons become less variable. And this cycle changes about once every 41,000 years. The third concept is precession and the most difficult to explain. If you can imagine the Earth spinning very fast like a top, one full rotation each day, and it has been doing this for billions of years, when your top has been spinning for a while, it starts slowing down and then begins to wobble. Precession is the amount of wobbling that occurs while the Earth is turning around. And this cycle varies every 19,000 to 24,000 years. So what do we notice from Brantford weather stations about our trends in climate change? Well, in our temperature graph, there is very little spread between the lines to tell the difference. But where there is separation, you can notice the line on the bottom is a climate average from 1941 to 1970. And the line on the top is the averages from 1981 to 2010, indicating that our temperatures are generally warming. And the most warming occurs in January and in July. The precipitation graph varies widely. But in 1941 to 1970, you'll notice there is a lot less variability in precipitation throughout the year. The more recent 1981 to 2010 average show less precipitation in the winter and a lot more in the summer, indicating that we are going to have 
less snowier winters, and more rain in the spring and the summer. How do we classify climates and how does this tell us about our climate changing in southern Ontario? So Brantford is currently classified as a DFP climate and Coupon classification system. The first letter represents temperature throughout the year, ranging from tropical or A to polar or E. So Brantford's D means that we have at least one month with an average temperature of greater than 10 degrees Celsius. The second letter F represents the precipitation throughout the year, meaning frequently moist, with all months having greater than 30 millimeters of precipitation. If we had a dry season, we would use W for a winter dry season and S for summer dry season. The last letter represents the extremes in the seasons, with B representing our warmest months average less than 22 Celsius. With my earlier observation about how our winters are getting drier, this could change our classification to a DWB climate. In terms of temperature, our warmest month of July started with an average of 20.7 degrees Celsius in the 1941 to 1970 average. And it's been increasing by 0.1 to 0.2 degrees Celsius so that the 1981 to 2010 average currently is 21.3. If the space of warming continues, by 2060, our average month's warmest temperature will surpass 22 degrees Celsius, changing our climate from a DFB to a DFA climate. Hi everyone, today I'm joined by Carly and Ken. Could you guys introduce yourself for the folks listening at home? Sure, thanks Mandy and thanks for having us. Uh, I'm Ken Burns. I'm a past chair and past member of SPAC. I was on SPAC, uh, well, so the Environmental uh, Sustainability and Policy Advisory Committee uh, for the City of Brantford for almost 10 years. And I was also on the Brownfield Community Policy Advisory Committee for a number of years. In my past, I've operated a, a company installing residential uh, solar systems for a number of years, uh, back in 2010 2013. And uh, I have a master's degree in environment and business. For me, sustainable development is really just about building the community we want at a price we can afford. Thanks, Ken. Uh, I'm Carly. Thanks so much, Mandy, for having us. Uh, I wear so many different hats. I, I'm young and I love to get involved in the community. I'm a member of SPAC, um, and as well as when I started underneath Ken when he was the chair of SPAC and uh, really grew with him into the green team and uh, ended up becoming the chair of green team. It's a subcommittee from SPAC. I went to University of Waterloo for kinesiology, but I'm currently working as a recreation therapist in Simcoe. All right. Thanks so much. Um, could you tell the folks listening at home a little more about SPAC and the green team and what that is? Sure. The SPAC is the Environmental Sustainability and Policy Advisory Committee for the City of Brantford. So it's a, a citizen committee of the City of Brantford. So uh, council appoints citizen members who have applied uh, to sit on the committee. And the committee provides advice to council on matters of environmental sustainability and, and policy. So things like the climate change declaration uh, or climate action declaration that we're going to be talking about later and and things like that are things that SPAC would provide a report on when uh, we go back to the bike park. 
at that time EPAC or SPAC provided a report to council on the environmental impact that the, the park was having and pros and cons for, for council to consider in, in doing it. So that's that's its mission. Sometimes uh, staff will bring things to SPAC for comment on as well and community engagement, right? That's the that's the main thing. And that's what we're really where the, the green team grew out of was having a community engagement committee that could actually go out to events and do things that wasn't just a policy based committee that that meets once a month, um, but that actually got out there. And that's why we created the green team to get more people involved and to do more more outreach. And I think uh, of the green team as more of an educational aspect to get the community involved in waste diversion. It was really cool. Before the pandemic, we partnered with Bush Manufacturing to have waste, recycling, and organic bins at the biggest festival in Brantford, and that's Canada Day. And we were able to divert, uh, Ken, quote me if I'm wrong, but I believe over 65% of the waste on Canada Day. So what's nice to know is uh, the waste bins that we have for the green team is we have the capacity to do the largest event in Brantford. So we can uh, implement our bins at any event and provide education and be there as a leader for any event that wants to implement waste diversion. And the goal at the end of the day, I believe, is to make sure that um, one day that could be a policy and it's uh, needed to make sure that we can reduce our waste and reduce our carbon input. Could you share with me where your passion for this kind of work came from? Uh, well, my passion uh, comes from really, you know, being raised with principles of environmental stewardship and being uh, stewards of the earth and the lands around us. You know, when I went off to university and I studied economics and I looked at, you know, how the, the economic models are built around the world, it really seemed to me that something was missing in, in that equation. You know, you can't have an economy without the environment, but the economy was in many ways based on, you know, ignoring or at least externalizing environmental costs of, of doing business, you know, as for example, with, you know, the landfill city on how much they cost to operate and maintain going into the future, they're not based on a replacement cost. So when companies have to pay to dispose of their waste, they're only paying a fraction of the real cost of that waste. And that doesn't even get into the, the lost materials and the, and the lost rare um, inputs that are that are there when it just goes to landfill, you know, forestry that getting our paper, if it's not sustainably made, that means that the company is not paying the cost of replacing that forest in making that paper, they're paying the cost of cutting the trees down and milling them into paper, but they're not paying the cost of replacing the forest. So, you know, these are examples of where the economy really doesn't factor in, you know, something that that is uh, really important. And I think there was a a professor in Arizona in 2009, I want to say, um, I can't remember his name, but a, a brilliant guy that, that wrote a great post about time for an environmental revolution. And what he said in that post was something that's become a little more commonplace today. But he, he said for the first time, like, look, if you think the economy is more important than the environment, and let's face it, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, many people did believe that. Um, and, and this sort of got the, the ball rolling is if you think the economy is, is more important than the environment, try holding your breath while you count your money. And, and I think that really sort of put it in perspective for me, you know, back then, like there's that missing piece. There's a great way to encapsulate it in a way that, that you know, people can can digest it. And I think that, you know, in today's world, we see a lot more people at least putting them on the same level. So that's really what um, got me involved. And then, you know, when I went back to school to 
a master's degree in environment and business, really being able to build on that and, and focus on municipal sustainability and, and that and being on great committees. And my love of that is what's got me going. My passion for this work, uh, I didn't grow up really in a sustainable household. It just wasn't something that was talked about. I was referred to as the tree hugger of the family. And I was always uh, getting on everybody at home to turn the lights off and to preserve our energy and our water. And it was just always something that I was passionate about in in that aspect. And when I stepped off like a free bird off to university, I realized uh, really my first year of university, how much paper cups that I was using myself, just because I was always having caffeine or coffee in my cup to get through university. And I saw something online that showed a picture of one reusable cup. And then there is a photo of 365 paper cups. And it says your one cup can replace 365 cups. And I just had that kind of aha moment when I saw that photo and said, what am I doing? Like I I'm preaching all this or an advocating for all this at home. Yet here I am with my paper cup and I'm really disconnected with the waste stream. I'm really polluting the environment if I'm using so much waste that I don't need to. So my, my passion came from reducing single use plastics I started with the with the cup and then in my own life started using um, reusable straws, using my produce bags, bringing my bags to the store and then also trying to build a community amongst this. I was uh, finishing university and I knew I was heading back to Brantford and I didn't know where I'd fit in to move back from my hometown. I just had this kind of moment where, okay, I'm, I'm done university. I, I went for kinesiology. So the human body, I had no background in environment that this was all just groundwork that I was focusing on. I was running um, uh, cleanups. We would call ourselves stash the trash. And once a month we would go out just a group of us on Facebook to clean up uh, Brantford. And um, I had all these items I was trying to reduce my waste with that I wanted to share with people. So I would do like a, just an online earth day event to get people out to different parks. And I would give them zero waste kits, just things that I would make from passion and share that with the community. And all of a sudden I recognize that there's, I'm not alone in this mission and that there's so many people out there that are wanting to go towards a green economy. It's been one thing after another where I recognize that to get this done, it can't just happen as an individual. It needs to happen at a business level and a government level. So I've been really trying to get myself involved in all angles and I can see how powerful our voices can be once we stick up for the greater good. And I, I I always think of this quote, the future belongs uh, to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And it's Eleanor Roosevelt. And my my beauty of my dream is recognizing that I believe the green economy is the future. And I'm definitely not backing down from that. So if we we keep taking small steps, I think we can take some larger leaps. And the green team's just that as well as ASPAC, it's uh, guiding us towards those bigger jumps. And it's so exciting to be a part of. Um, could you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the city's climate action change plan and how you guys were involved in that? Yeah, I'll start off uh, through SPAC. We are able to review uh, the climate action plan ahead of time, as well as make suggestions uh, as to what we believe would be more beneficial for the city. So uh, just sitting on SPAC, making sure that uh, we agree with the recommendations and that this is a way to head towards uh, a more sustainable Brantford. So I love the climate change action plan. I believe this is necessary and I'm excited that the wheels are spinning. 
Yeah, and, and I would just add to that that I think um, SPAC was really involved in the genesis of, of those plans. So the plans themselves were put together by Brantford's Climate uh, Change Officer, which was another initiative that was initiated by SPAC was to encourage the city to hire a climate change officer and there was funding available for it. And so we supported um, staff in, in you know, putting those applications in, getting that funding and hiring that person. So I think there's a lot of hope and and a lot of um, there's a lot of work ahead, but there's a lot of hope in Brantford's climate action plan, both the corporate climate action plan and the community uh, climate action plan, uh, both of which were really developed by staff, as as Carly said, with comment and input from SPAC. But you know, with those tools in place and and with that mindset in place, we have really you know, measurable objectives. We have uh, we have targets. We have tools in place to know if we're moving towards those targets or we're not moving towards those targets. And both things can happen. And at the end of the day, it really is up to council when they're deciding on a on something that's been put before them. You know, do they want to do it? Not everything is going to move us towards our climate change objectives, but if we move away from them, we've got to double our efforts to move back to them. Right? That you know, not every um, project is going to do that. So being able to to weigh those projects and see what can be done and are there other areas of any given thing that could be improved. I think those are real strengths of uh, Brantford's climate action plans. Um, and can you share with me some really simple ideas that folks can be doing at home to make a difference? For sure. I, I think that, you know, the first thing is if you want to go to Brantford's website and read the plans, the plans are meant to be read by everyday people. They're not technical documents filled with tables and, and you know complex engineering language or whatever. They're really um, written for everybody to be able to understand. And I think one of the fundamental concepts that, that underlies both the corporate emissions plan and the, and the community engagement plan is the fundamental model of reduce, improve, and switch. And what that means is if we're gonna reduce if, if we're going to tackle climate change, the first and, and easiest savings is to reduce our usage, reduce energy usage, reduce waste, you know, reduce the, the actions or, or things that are actually causing the emissions to happen in the first place, right? So we can do that by, you know, reducing our waste, by diverting our, our organics, by composting or, or using biogas facilities to, to make energy out of the organic wastes. Um, we can do that, as Carly was saying earlier in her house, she championed just turning off the lights when you're not in, in a, a room or you're not using it. I'll tell you, both Carly and I, as, as, as political candidates, have done a lot of canvassing of the streets. And it's amazing how many houses you go to and you see bright sun streaming into the kitchen and streaming into the front room. And yet all the lights are on in, in the house, you know, even with that. That's just one example of, of saying, you know, to do that. So reducing our, our energy. In addition to reducing it, the next step is to improve the efficiency of what we're doing. So maybe it's time for a new furnace and maybe your furnace is 25 years old in your house and might even be an oil one. Going to a high efficiency furnace instead of another you know, low efficiency and almost all appliances today are pretty much high efficiency anyway. So you know, that, that's really what you're gonna be looking at, but, but even considering that, right? And, and to go to the lighting analogy, using LED bulbs now instead of using the uh, old incandescent bulbs or even you know CFLs and so on, the LEDs are far more energy efficient. So we still are gonna need light. That's just a way of improving you know, the way we get light. We're improving the efficiency. 
And then switch is once we've reduced the amount that we're using to as much as we can reduce it, we've improved the, the technology that we're using, we've improved the efficiency as much as we can, then switching to clean energy sources, right? So switching to uh, renewable natural gas or switching to renewable electricity to power your LED lights, um, those kinds of things, right? So bullfrog power is a common one that everybody's uh, aware of for renewable uh, electricity. Um, the renewable natural gas is, is really simple. It's like $2 a month on your, for those people that are using um, natural gas, it's not a huge price hike on, on what it is. And I think the mayor noted that a lot of people uh, in Brantford, like when you look at the, um, the, where the emissions are coming from in the community plan, a lot of it is heating and cooling our homes. That's where a lot of those uh, emissions are coming from. So those are examples of how people can apply the reduce, improve, and switch model themselves to their home and to their daily life. It applies to everything that you do, whether it's transportation, you know, carpooling to work. There are great ways to reduce or improve, you know, getting an electric vehicle, those kinds of things, or, or engaging in, in public transit of some form, if that's possible, whatever it is from waste to transportation to housing. If you look at your life with that reduce, improve and switch model, and it's in both plans, and I think staff has done a great job of laying it out and explaining it, take a look around your house and you will find ways to use that model to make your, your own, to reduce your own emissions at home. That was awesome, Ken. Um, I'm going to add on, I guess I have my waste diversion hat still on. I'm, I, I just really want, I guess, one easy thing that I can say for individuals that sometimes they might not know about um, waste diversion is if it's not clean, don't put it in the recycling. Sometimes at home, you have that idea that I need to do good. I, I need to recycle, but I'm, a, I'm not feeling in the moment to do it. Like I, I get the example of a peanut butter jar. Some people just don't feel like emptying out their peanut butter jar. And so I'll just say it, it has to be black and white that if it's not clean, it does not belong in the recycling bin. We get a lot of contamination in the recycling bin, which makes our recycling not really recyclable anymore. So the more clean you can keep your recycling bin, I know it's hard, but if you're not going to clean out that peanut butter container, it does not belong in the recycling and just put it in the garbage. Or for me, I wouldn't be able to do that. You just got to clean it out and you got to put it in the recycling. There's no other answer, but there's this wonderful resource that Brantford has and it's called recycling coach. And it's an app that you can download on your phone. And I, anytime that I get a question, if somebody says, is this recyclable? Is this not recyclable? Where can I put this? I always resort back to recycling coach and it's a city it's a, it's a Brantford initiative to make sure that the public knows what goes where. And I, I think the other thing I would like to add is, is, is advocacy, you know, for people at home, please be willing to go out, go out and tell council, tell your counselors, their contact information is on the city website as well. Tell them how important this is to you and how much action you want to see the city take. A couple of my big bugaboos, I've complimented the city a lot so far. I think I could take a couple shots at them. Uh, we still have no recycling downtown. Where do you put your recycling when you're downtown? There's a garbage everywhere, but there's nowhere for people to divert their recycling downtown. Why not? Why do we not have that? Why are there no recycling in Brantford's parks? We have beautiful parks, but all they have are garbage bins. Why do we not have recycling in our parks? Um, if people wanted to get involved with SPAC and the green team, how would they go about doing that? 
Yeah, please just reach out. Right now we have applications going out in September and October for a new term of SPAC members. So in uh, November, you feel free if you if this is something that interests you, if you found uh, that this discussion is up your alley, then you'll you'll definitely enjoy sitting on SPAC. I would say reach out, submit an application, uh, join SPAC, uh, you, and you can also join in as a community member for the subcommittee, which is the green team to really focus on, on waste diversion. The green team is also on Facebook and it's on Instagram. So if there's any questions, you can always reach out and somebody's always there to answer those. Feel free to come out for an event uh, and, and see if you like it, see if you have fun. If you like it, come back again. We always need volunteers. We're always looking for people to help. And it's a great, you know, learning experience. You're not going to have to do anything you don't want to do. You know, if, if doing the waste audit is not your thing, that's okay. We're not going to make you do that. There's other people who love getting in there and getting their, their gloves dirty and, and, and sorting the stuff out. But maybe you like talking to people and you can talk, you can stand at one of the waste stations and help people know what goes in the recycling, what goes in the organics and whatever's left going in the, in the waste. Whenever you come out, you're not alone. If you're at a way station, bring a friend. If um, you're unsure what goes where, there's always a leader there to make sure that everybody's supported. So if you think, you know what, I, I might not know everything about recycling, but I'm really interested in volunteering with the green team, come on out. You don't need any background in any type of waste diversion. Everything, everyone's there to support you and the green team's always there to cheer you on as well and making sure everybody has fun. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Robert McClemon, and I am a professor of environmental studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. Can you briefly describe what is included in the chapter you worked on? So I was one of the coordinating lead authors for chapter seven of the most recent report of working group two of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which released a report in February 2022 uh, concerning the impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability of people to climate change. And so chapter seven was focused on the impacts of climate change on human health, well-being, migration, conflict, and displacement. So a very wide range of what we might call human security or human well-being issues. And so myself and a team of a dozen authors from around the world worked together to assess uh, scholarly research and publications that have come out over the last five or six years uh, on that topic, assessing the key messages and uh, writing them out and presenting them in a way that's accessible to policymakers and to the general public. Who is the most vulnerable from the impacts of climate change and what makes them more vulnerable? There's a large number of people in any given community who will be more vulnerable than others to the impacts of climate change, but there are certain common characteristics. So, for example, when we're thinking about health and well-being, uh, we find that, for example, women and children are often more vulnerable to the health risks associated with climate change because those health risks are things like extreme heat, uh, the chance of communicable diseases or waterborne diseases, which are uh, serious um, killers of children, quite frankly, in less developed parts of the world. Um, we also find, for example, that Indigenous people are also uh, often more vulnerable than other groups, often because their livelihoods uh, and well-being is much more tightly connected 
to uh, resources and to biodiversity than people, say, who live in large urban centers. Uh, we also find that impoverished people are generally more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, because if you think about extreme heat, one of the ways that we protect ourselves is to have nice air-conditioned homes and buildings, which is fine if you can afford air conditioning, uh, but we often find that hospital admissions, that uh, healthcare visits, and even deaths related to heat stroke and extreme heat, it's the elderly who are more vulnerable to that because they are the ones who, if they don't have those access to those uh, those facilities, um, the elderly and uh, and the poor, um, they are are more at risk. Um, and we also find people who live in particular types of housing are more vulnerable than others. If you think about extreme storms, for example, so people who live in trailers or who live in substandard housing, whether it's here in Canada or in other parts of the world. Uh, they're at greater risk of injury or harm during extreme storm events, greater risk of displacement. Uh, people who live in low-lying areas uh, that are close to hazards or people who live in fire-prone areas will be more exposed to the risks of climate change than others. I know it sounds like a long list and pretty soon you, it might be easier to say, well, who isn't vulnerable to climate change? And I guess in one way, we are all to a certain extent uh, vulnerable to the impacts it, of climate change. Nobody is exempt from these risks. It's just that certain groups are just more exposed to those risks and hazards than the rest of us. It's a really good way to sum that up, kind of um, thinking of low-lying. I know in Brantford, we have a good segment of the population living in floodplains. And I think a scary statistic, like only four or 6% of people who live in those areas actually know that they live in a flood risk zone. But I did a floodplain walk touring the edge of the floodplain in Brantford, just in the neighborhood near here. And yeah, people were very surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's been research shown that for every half degree Celsius that average temperatures rise, uh, it causes a 50% increase in the risk of severe flooding in most floodplains. So in preparing for this interview, I did learn um, that this IPCC assessment report that you were part of was the first to look at the impact of climate change on mental health. So what are the concerns around mental health and is there a reason it wasn't included in previous assessments? This is a new area of research that's only emerged in the last five or maybe 10 years, but really the last five or six years, which is how climate change can affect people's mental health and well-being. Scientists are starting to recognize now is that there are direct and indirect consequences of climate change for people's mental health and well-being. So some of the direct impacts, for example, would be people who actually experience an extreme heat event or uh, experience property damage or, or loss of a loved one because of extreme events that causes everything from anxiety to, to, to higher levels of stress to even post-traumatic stress disorders. Uh, the indirect risks would be, for example, say that I personally haven't experienced one of these extreme events, but I have loved ones who have, and that obviously causes greater anxiety for me. Uh, there can be other indirect risks as well associated with just the recognition that your livelihood or well-being may be compromised by these emerging risks. There's quite a bit of research showing that young people in particular are very vulnerable to anxiety and higher stress levels because they're the ones who not only do they, they realize that the climate is changing around them, but that this is something that has great uh, importance for their future well-being, their livelihoods, right? They're going to be the ones who have to live with this for another 50 years. And when they hear projections that, you know, 50 years from now, 
there's going to be you know, hundreds of millions of people displaced from their homes around the world. If they hear that risk related to flood or to vector-borne diseases or to extreme heat, that, you know, the, the risks just keep going up and up, things are not looking good in the future unless we start changing our ways now. So these are all just some of the many ways in which our, our mental well-being is, is at risk because of this changing climate that we're living in. What can individuals or even communities do to adapt to the impacts of climate change? This is where I think we can be hopeful because we can't predict the future, but we can try to make it what we want it to be. And so for communities, for individuals, there are a great many things that we can do to A, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and B, uh, prepare ourselves for a future where there's a good chance that our day-to-day well-being may be disrupted. Uh, because of the impacts of climate change. And it becomes a question of daily practice. So in terms of dealing with the root of the problem, so addressing you know, greenhouse gas emissions, every time that you substitute a trip on a bicycle or uh, as a pedestrian for a car journey, or whether you're taking a bus instead of a car ride, you are contributing towards being part of the solution, right? You're reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. Every time that you switch from say, buying that store-bought steak or hamburger to a vegetarian meal, you don't have to become vegan, you don't have to become vegetarian, but if just one day a week, you can choose food items that have lower carbon footprints, and those are typically vegetarian or vegetable-based meals. Uh, If you can do that once a week, you've now reduced your food-related carbon impact by one-seventh. And if you can go through sort of your day-to-day activities and think about if everybody just reduced a little bit of their impact on the environment in all of these different ways, then collectively it makes a big difference. But in terms of the the, the question of, of how we adapt and how our communities can adapt, well, we, we do know that these risks already exist. Uh, folks in Brantford, Ontario, for example, they know that flooding is a is a regular risk at certain times of the year. And there's been a lot of public investment that's been made in terms of flood proofing the city and infrastructure, but there are limits. And so households, they can choose, for example, you know, it sounds silly, but never store anything valuable, you know, uh, in the basement or even on the ground floor. If it's an heirloom or something of great value, put it up a floor. And that way, if your your building is somehow damaged by flooding, your valuables are protected. If you think about your own health, for example, um, you know, there's a whole many different ways that climate change will impact our health. And one of the classic ones for people who live in cities is heat, you know, heat waves. They're becoming more and more frequent in the summertime. Obviously, if you can afford air conditioning, that's great. But even if you can't, there are things you can do. So if you have a a home, plant trees, plant vegetation. The city can invest in planting more trees and vegetation because cities have something called an urban heat island effect. It means that all that pavement, all those asphalt shingles on the rooftops, all those dark building walls and so on, they trap heat on a hot day. And so the temperature in the city will be higher than the temperature in the countryside around the city because there's more vegetation in the countryside. So these are just a few of the the many things that we can do if we think about, and it will vary from one family or household to another, um, but these are things that we can think about doing to make our day-to-day Um, uh, existence and and activities more climate-proofed. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming to really think about how much climate change is going to impact all of us. 
Yeah, Carly brought up one of my favorite points that I I also educate people about all the time, including my staff at the museum. I see them have an ice cap, uh, Tim Hortons cup, and then they throw it in the recycling bin. And I tell them, you know, that's not getting recycled. That's just going to go to the landfill. And uh, it's it's great hearing uh, other people saying those things and know that you're on the right track. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how she was talking about how most people don't realize that they have to clean their recycling. That, you know, like, so you have to cut like the greasy spot out of the pizza box or those kinds of things. Cause I think a lot of people would have no idea about that, that. And I think that the fact that we have that recycling coach app is a great, uh, great uh, thing for people to know about. So that it makes it easier for them to know what to do. I was excited to learn about the recycling coach app because I didn't know about it before. Yeah. I, I remember hearing about it when the, I think the city first developed it. I think most municipalities use a similar type of uh, approach. I think something too that I found that was interesting that Robert said was about to have an impact just having one less meal of meat. Right. Because it's not about completely eliminating certain things. It's about like that reduction of our consumption. It's just that we, as individuals and as groups of people and nations, we just consume too many resources at this point. So Again, it's not about completely stopping the use of those resources. It's about reducing. So yeah, cutting out a few meat meals during the week. If everyone did that. My favorite one is that Robert was talking about was uh, reducing your energy consumption at home all the time. And I, I see this, like I go and visit friends and their air conditioner is set at like uh, 69 or 70 Fahrenheit. Uh, I don't know what that is in Celsius, but probably like 20, right? During the day, I have it set in my house to go up to 29 and a half. And it only goes down to 25 an hour before I come home. And then about 8.30, I think it only goes down to like 22 and a half. And that's like my sleeping temperature. So I do that in the summer. And then in the winter, I let it go down to like 16 or something if I'm not home. And then like, even if I am home, it's like uh, 19 and I have a gas fireplace behind me. And this is the room that I spend most of my time in. So if it gets a little chilly, I just turn on uh, the fireplace for a little bit. And then uh, that way I'm not uh, wasting heat as well. It must also help with the bills. Yeah, it's very economical. It's, I remember my cousin told me she bought her first house. And she kept it really cold too. I was surprised how cold she kept it. And she's like, yeah, it's great for the bills. And then I discovered just how great it is for your bill. That's a good tip. We don't always turn it down like when we're going to go out and stuff like that. But in the winter, we always turn our heat down when we're going to bed. So at least at that time. One of my other favorite things that Robert talked about was urban heat islands, which I'm all about. And (laughs) one of the courses I took Oh, we have this book, Boundary Layer Climates by T.R.O. And he's a Canadian. And he was really the first guy that like studied this stuff in depth. So he, uh, he did a study in Vancouver. And uh, there's studies done about it in Montreal. And as well, they did a, a study in Kitchener. And even Kitchener has an urban heat island. So I'm sure if we were to do something similar in Brantford, we'd also find an urban heat island effect. I think for sure. I mean, anecdotally, like personally, 
you know, when I leave work here in Brantford and go out to the countryside where I have family and stuff, it feels so much cooler. And it's like, it's only been a 10 minute drive. Like the temperature wouldn't have dropped just because it's getting later in the day. Like it's crazy. I think the first time that I heard about, about the heat, the heat islands and about all of that was with you guys talking with you guys and it got brought up on the podcast previously or whatever. Um, but I think it's really great how the, the city is trying to um, to add a lot more trees and increase the tree canopy and stuff like that. I think that's going to be super helpful. Down yeah, one interesting thing I've seen, um, I've seen some articles about cities who are getting white roads as opposed to like the black asphalt roads to reflect the uh, sunlight. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what I was actually going to bring up to you. There's other ways that we can do it. It's this concept called albedo. Albedo is the amount of light that reflects. So if you think about like black things, right? It absorbs all that heat. And the reason that they're using white is because white is reflective. So it reflects that energy and then the city doesn't heat up so much. So uh, white rooftops are one way, but uh, there's also like green rooftops that you can do that are um, much better for the environment. I hadn't even thought of how it, actually affects like mental health and stuff like that until that interview that you did so I I agree too like I hadn't even thought about that as an idea or a concept I knew like uh you know you you hear about Greta Thunberg and and her talking about and how she's like uh screaming out the top of her lungs right and it's like people aren't listening right and uh sometimes it does kind of kind of feel like that yeah it's uh it's interesting because I think one of the things that, yeah, really stuck out to me was that um, the chapter Robert worked on actually like highlighted some of the ways that people will be impacted from a mental health perspective. And it's not, it's something I've heard of like climate grief and that kind of thing. Um, but I think it's something that we're not all realizing is going to impact us as hard as it is just because from the perspective of, you know, possibly losing a lovely like green space or you know depending where you live if you experience flooding or fires you're gonna have kind of the impacts of that and you know even if you don't fully understand climate change you're still gonna feel what's happening or maybe your family members will. I think about our flooding episode that we did last season and like Andy talked to people and she lived through it. And I mean, you cannot say that that type of an event doesn't have impacts on people and impacts on their mental health. Like, and like you pointed out, Zila, about your uh, floodplain tour, that thing that you did in Brantford, right? Many people don't know. And I go on the GRCA website, they have a tool called Map Your Property. You can very clearly and easily see where the floodplain is. If you're in those areas, and we talked about emergency preparedness too. So if you're in those areas, you should almost expect that a flood is going to happen on your property if something does happen. And maybe it's maybe it's time not to rebuild in those areas, which are also very difficult conversations to have with people. But as these events happen more and more and more, it, it's going to start being a conversation that I feel like we're going to have. Recently in the news as well, they came out with that a report that $139 billion it's going to cost the Canadian economy over the next 30 years. 
right? So those are, those are real numbers. Those are big numbers. And part of that as well is that mental health aspect, which is a lot more hard to quantify in terms of dollars and cents. I find it interesting, Nathan, with what, what you're saying, that we continue to let developers build in the floodplains. If it's that easy to know that that's what it is, why we would continue to let developers like build homes for people in the floodplains. Provincially, the provincial government actually has policies that recommend not to build in floodplains. And it says like, with the exception of like, to the discretion of the municipality, if they believe there's reasons to do it. But like, (laughs) their number one recommendation is not to build in floodplains. Like we can do things like build dikes to prevent things. But like New Orleans, dikes do fail or they do overtop. And when they and when that happens, it's catastrophic. One point of hope that I did take away from this is just a lot of what we've been talking about together over these episodes of For the Love of Brantford is really like how much individual community members work with each other to help each other and come up with solutions to issues they're experiencing in their areas. And I think even in this episode and listening to the interviews, like I was hearing that again, how, you know, community comes together. And so in a sense, I'm hopeful because I think community will work together to adapt as they need to and figure out what is best for them moving forward. I really like that Ken talked about that in their solution, right? Their solution to the problem was a made in Brantford solution, which uh, is something that we always talk about. I think that's part of the Brantford innovation and creativity that's always around in the community under the surface. It's a big part of what I love about Brantford. That's it for episode three of second season of For the Love of Brantford. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to our website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB to fill out our feedback form. Any and all suggestions are welcome. Thank you, Ken and Carly, for all the information you shared and for all you do for our community. And thank you to Robert McLemon for speaking to me about his chapter in the IPCC report. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Etherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.